Hello, James. Hello, Vinny. Welcome to the show. We are already live, and uh, I do want to thank you very much for uh, being here on time, as fantastic as you happen to be. Now, uh, so we just finished with uh, Billy TK, and uh, in fact, there was a video that you put out on your channel not too long ago that actually mentioned the uh, the New Zealand Public Party, right? So I was wondering what your first impressions of the uh, of the party and uh, or any political uh, movement for freedom for that matter. Uh, personally, I'm an anarchist. I don't vote for anyone. I never will. I 100 uh, percent completely disagree with the entire idea of politics itself and the idea that anyone has any right to rule over other people. But having said that, I don't dissuade other people from doing whatever they feel is necessary or relevant or that they think will help defend them against the tyranny that's coming down the pipe. So anyone who's interested in the New Zealand political party or otherwise, I'm I'm happy for to leave them be. And besides, what could I do about it otherwise? Um, but having said that, I have done almost zero research into the New Zealand People's Party, is it? Yeah. Okay. New Zealand Sorry, Public Party. I just had someone write in um, saying that they had found it and thought it was interesting. I saw you were involved with it. I didn't. I don't know anything about it, so I'm not promoting it. But uh, if people are interested in politics, have at it. Okay. Well, the uh, background on it is they're the uh, first political party to call out the communist infiltration of our political system uh, by exposing donations to both the leaning uh, national and uh, labor parties who are the uh, Republicans and uh, Democrats and Figment, uh, respectively. They've also come out against uh, Agenda 21 and all of the international agreements that New Zealand is subject to and wish to uh, reclaim the country for all all the people rather than the special interests and the new world order. So that's just basically a sum up. And, you know, anybody would be uh, looking at thinking, you know what, these guys are just going to get shafted royally by the media. Nobody's going to listen to them. Everybody's going to call them crazy. And uh, yeah, they have. Now, the the difference here, though, (laughs) is the huge amount of public support uh, for the party, especially uh, via uh, Fashbuch. Uh, the two million engagements last week, two million people seen the, uh, uh, I think it was 2.1 million p- uh, uh, people uh, reached by the, by the thing last week. Now, this is a political party that's about hmm, 80 days old, I think, and it even has more reach than the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern herself, who has essentially at the moment a mainstream media monopoly because she's giving all the daily COVID updates. So it's a uh, it's an interesting thing uh, that is happening, and we haven't seen its like before. Now that being said, today what, uh, there was a, a bunch of there was a list of reasons I wanted to get you on here today, James, and it's in the um, it's in the notes of our uh, little Skype conversation here. Um, and I just want to see if I can crack that open. Ah, here we are. Culture jamming, the peer-to-peer economy, statism, community, uh, gardens, currencies, open source, uh, technocratic control grid, and Bill Gates. Those are the uh, the items that we really want to get on uh, the uh, bandwagon today. Uh, so, number one, we're in the middle of an election season. We're in the middle of this COVID lockdown uh, craziness. What is culture jamming, James? Culture jamming is the theory and practice of taking the mainstream media uh, and its ability to get messages out to millions of 
NPCs and people who will blindly believe what they're told and inserting real information into that mix. And how do you do that? How do you commandeer the systems of information dissemination that are so evidently and obviously controlled by the powers that shouldn't be? How do you do that in a way that will actually get something of real value out there? Well, uh, there are a lot of different ideas and there are people who have been doing this for many years. Uh, perhaps one of the prime examples that uh, will come to mind for a lot of people are the yes men who have done various pranks, essentially. That's what they are. They're, uh, they will, for example, create an entire organization and group that appears to be associated with, uh, with uh, this oil and gas company and then go on BBC and say, yes, we're going out and we're, uh, we're going to give all of, uh, uh, all of the people involved in the Bhopal disaster uh, uh, compensation for, the, for this. And, and what? And, and this is announced live on BBC by this attorney who's a representative of this group and all of this. And then it turns out, ah, oh, it was all a prank. You know, we didn't actually do that. Or the, you know, the people who come out with the, the, uh, the, the fake edition of the New York Times back several years ago, you know, the Bush and Cheney indicted for war crimes and all of this. Oh, it was just a prank. You know, this isn't a real newspaper, but it's at least enough to use those vehicles of information control that are obviously wielded by the powers that shouldn't be against uh, well, not against the public, but in a way that will actually give truth to the public and in a way that will break through their psychological barriers to those crazy conspiracy theorists. This is coming from BBC. This is coming from New York Times. Um, it can be an exceptionally effective tactic. Of course, it's only one tactic in our tool belt, but it is one that can and should be used, I think, more often. Why on earth would we play fair against these people who are literally trying to enslave us. I mean, this is not a game to take lightly. These these people are literally trying to control our lives from the top down, and they have the billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars printed out of thin air in order to do that. Uh, why wouldn't we try to use any and every vehicle and, and uh, method that we have to get the information out there? So it can be done effectively. And I was talking about this on Propaganda Watch, my weekly series where I examine propaganda and the various ways that it influences public uh, policy and perspectives. And I was examining actually Extinction Rebellion, which I'm sure a lot of your audience have heard about uh, before. I, I think it's based in or coming out of the UK specifically, but uh, it is, I'm sure, an international movement, but specifically in in England, they were uh, doing such things as uh, people might have seen protesting and trying to stop uh, trains in the tube stations and things like this, stop people from going to work to feed their families because these, you know, this mass public transport is bad for the environment or whatever that kind of point they were trying to make there. There was another um, protest that I covered specifically where they dressed up as miners uh, in at this mining site and literally had like cardboard safety hats and things and ridiculous homemade safety vests and pretending to be miners uh, saying we're striking against this company because we don't like what they're doing to the environment and uh, interviewed again, I believe on maybe not BBC. Was it BBC? I can't remember at this point. People can go check my propaganda watch for that. And uh, and then it turns out, lo and behold, oh yeah, these aren't actually miners. These are just representatives of this group. And I was pointing out at the time, look, I'm against Extinction Rebellion and the general point they're trying to make. But hey, at least they're being creative with it and doing it in this way that's getting a lot of attention for their cause. Imagine if we were doing that for real truth-related information and doing doing things that way. It's one way to undermine people's defenses against this type of information by getting through to them, hopefully with something 
at least humorous. At the very least, I mean, you, people laugh at it. It's a harmless little thing. Oh, they played a little prank on the media, and that'll, that in and of itself gets more attention for the cause. So I think it is an important tactic and one that's often overlooked amongst the truth community. Speaking of this, tactics in and of themselves, are tactics being overlooked by the truth community, by people trying to uh, set themselves free, that kind of thing? It's, it's, it's almost like you see people out there just banging their heads against a brick wall and not thinking to themselves, you know, this is hurting me. Maybe I should try something different. Is there a hammer nearby? I, I... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look, let's put it this way. I'm not here telling anyone how to do that or not to do it or what to do or what not to do. I'm just throwing out ideas out there and everyone will act on them in their own separate ways. And that, I think, is the point of this. I think may the best ideas win. And as I say, I don't think that any one particular tactic or technique is the silver bullet that's going to bring everyone down. Uh, it's going to collapse the system and, you know, we'll have revolution overnight. Of course not. But well, it well, is a course. tactic. And uh, not one tactic was used against mankind to enslave us either. So exactly. I think it's like, so many yeah. different tactics need to be employed exactly. simultaneously in multitudes of directions on levels. And I want to stress, I want to stress that everyone has their own strengths and everyone has their own abilities. And some people will be more naturally inclined to do the pranking kind of thing because that's more in line with who they are. I, again, it has to it has to come from a place of truth within yourself. If you are trying to project some sort of false sense of who you are or trying to, you know, be out on the streets as an organizer, activist, protester or something, when that's not who you are, then that's probably a misallocation of your talents and abilities. My talents and abilities, I think, are in the lines of research and presenting this information and documentaries and stuff like that. And that goes so far with a certain section of the population. But of course, it's not, again, the silver bullet. Everyone has to do things in their own way that resonates most with who they are and takes advantage of their own talents. Well, let's also remember that if everybody did something different, it would be that much harder for the establishment to come up with countering tactics. Exactly right. I always, that's why I think ultimately this has to be, I, I don't want to say lone wolf because that brings a lot of inter associations with it. And of course, I don't mean it in the sense that everyone has to be an island and 100% disconnected from everyone. That's a straw man of what I'm actually saying. But I think this shouldn't, shouldn't be a leader movement where we all have to go and follow in line with a leader because we know they have 8,000 different ways of undermining or just decapitating any sort of movement that has a head. If it has a head, it's easy to chop off the head. If it doesn't have a head, that is a movement that they cannot control. Yeah, it uh, reminds me of, uh, what was it, Batman Begins. He said, as a man, I can be shot, I can be broken, I can be discredited. But as a symbol... As a symbol, I can live forever. And I think that's uh, essentially what many men and women have done throughout history is that in the course of their own life, they have become symbols uh, for others to draw power from. Like the examples that we draw power from, whether it be Bill Hicks from, from uh, drawing power from the comedy or whether it be Alex Jones drawing power from this raw man-itis kind of uh, uh, a angsty uh, 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 ape-like routine. I don't know what it is. It's just brain force. It's brain force. Let's address some of the comments in the chat there. I see Thomas Booth, but isn't Extinction Rebellion somewhat of a boogie 
man perpetrated like COINTELPRO new left by Hoover, like TWLF or the weather underground. I'm not sure about the specific references there, but I, I don't want people to get what I'm saying wrong. Please go and watch my propaganda watch on the extinction rebellion where I make 100% positively sure I am not in any way advocating extinction rebellion, what it says, what it does. I'm 100% against them and their ideology, but I'm saying the tactic that they were employing is a smart tactic that can be used by us. And if we cannot study the way that the enemy tries to influence our perceptions and use some of those tactics against the enemy, then what are we doing? Yeah, I think it was uh, Sun Tzu who said that if you know yourself, you will be victorious 50% of the time. If you know your enemy, you will be victorious 50% of the time. But if you know yourself and you know your enemy... 100% of the time you will be victorious. Now, the peer-to-peer -peer economy... I don't think that's the exact quote, but I think that's the gist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that, that's me. I, I like to get the gist, but not much more. Uh, the peer-to-peer <laughs> peer economy, could you explain that for people? So peer-to-peer uh, -peer economy, I'm not sure. There are a lot of different ways to describe this. In some ways, it's disparagingly put down as the gig economy. Um, but essentially, this is the idea that we can take out the middlemen that have been absolutely essential to the way that our economic and monetary system has functioned since at least the Industrial Revolution. You can harken back to pre-Industrial Revolution where cottage industries were literally cottage industries and people in their own homes would you know, do their their little thing, whatever it was, to contribute towards the the village, the the town, and would be uh, rewarded on an individual basis for that. But then you get the industrial revolution. You get these giant factories, mass production. Everyone moves to the city, and everybody is uh, basically working you know, in some wage job at some machine, more or less. And that became the way the economy is structured. But because of technological advances that have happened in a lot of different fields, we have the idea of recapturing that that previous model whereby everyone is an independent craftsman, an independent maker who is not beholden to someone who has the ability to control this factory or whatever. No, we can actually control production at the individual level. That is becoming a reality and is only going to become more and more of a reality as 3D printing and these other technologies start to play out. At some point in the near future, we will all be able to be independent craftsmen, designers, tradesmen who can do our thing independent of anyone else. We do not need to rely on these humongous capital investments to create these giant factories and all of that. That is the promise. That is where we are heading. And then when you throw in cryptocurrencies and other things that can further disintermediate the banking system upon which, unfortunately, a lot of us uh, have been forced to rely for all of our lives anyway, and for hundreds of years, uh, in order to negotiate this fiat money system that's been created. Well, if we can eliminate the need for these banksters in the middle of every transaction, eliminate the need for the central banks in the middle of every transaction, eliminate the need for this gigantic production supply chain whereby we mass produce these gadgets and gadgets um, by the millions and then send them out to every corner of the globe physically on trucks and planes and boats and whatever so that they can sit in some corner of some store in Nowheresville, Ireland or or Wisconsin or New Zealand or anywhere else that in the hopes that one person will go by and look at that and go, you know what, I, I need that gadget. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. What a stupid and ridiculous system of, uh, of 
of production. It only makes sense because of the technology that was available. Well, now we're coming into the idea we can actually produce the goods ourselves individually at the at at at, at our desktop, literally, when we start to get into 3D printing, uh, on order as we need it. We can purchase directly from the designers. This is something that the the owners of the current system obviously do not like. They love centralized systems of control where they can have these mass conglomerates, these multinationals that control the lives of millions, ultimately billions of people around the world because they control the products that these people are consuming. They, they control the workers who are producing them. They control the system from the top down. Decentralization of this, the peer-to-peer -peer economy where we are like in a network, we are not relying on a central server, we are directly connecting with other people in this economy. That is the nightmare to the people who want to control humanity. That's why I think there is so much promise in this. And unfortunately, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people cannot see the, uh, the forest for the trees because they will look at an Airbnb or an Uber or a uh, you know, these specific examples of this, the way this is coming into view and say, look, you know, Airbnb is just another horrible corporation and they do this and that. Yeah. OK, fine. Fair enough. But, you know, what about Arcade City? Have you ever heard of it? Of course not, because that isn't one of these, you know, co corporations that's going to play by the rules. No, they're a ride sharing service that'll take crypto and, you know, everything's uh, off the record from Uncle Sam and everything. So, of course, they're not going to get any attention. But those sorts of things are out there as well. And if we support them, we can bring into reality a peer-to-peer -peer economy that is not dependent on the powers that shouldn't be. And that's really what this is about. And so, of course, in the mainstream, this conversation is going to be dumbed down and they're going to say, look, it's the gig economy where you don't get government health insurance because you're not an employee of a corporation. We all need to be employees of mega corporations, darn it. And anyone who doesn't want that is clearly a weirdo or something, uh, which is just nonsense and does not reflect our lived, experienced reality in the 21st century with 21st century technology and possibilities coming online. This is true. And... Uh to give a personal example, I uh, had some ladies from the Internal Revenue Department come over to my house, and I told them what I did for a living, and they couldn't actually think of a tax bracket that I fit into. Like, they were, they were here to collect all this unpaid tax, but none of the money that I get is from a taxable source because it's all gifts from you, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, and so I exist in a tax bracket that doesn't exist. That is the peer-to-peer -peer economy, right? And and you, James, you, yourself, you've uh, you've uh, pioneered this peer-to-peer uh, -peer economy. I've uh, I've made what four thousand videos over twelve years. I've uh, had thousands of uh, uh, interviews with people on this show uh, from all walks of life. And the only way I've been able to do that is because of the peer-to-peer -peer economy. Because if I had to work, if I had to uh, go and do uh, something that I hated that didn't uh, inspire me creatively uh, whatsoever uh, for the rest of my life until the age of fifty-five. When I beg, when I beg myself to blow my brains out without a shotgun, you know, like the, 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 those kind of things, I just can't do, right? But this, I can do. Yeah, it's a completely different way of existing. That uh, I often stop and think to myself that I could not have even imagined what it is I do for a living, even two decades ago. It wouldn't have even been possible to think of what it is that I'm doing right now. And I, so I don't take it for granted. 
uh, I am very, very appreciative of the fact that this exists and we are able to connect in these ways that were not possible before. I Again, unfortunately, a lot of people are not seeing this forest for the trees. And uh, that's unfortunate because it leads a lot of people into the depressive thinking that we're all stuck in this system forever and it will never, you know, nothing will ever change and we'll, we'll just be stuck here powerless and oh, woe is us. It, it's a, the exact opposite of that, you know. It, it, it's sort of like this gives you power. This gives you the ability to go and do what you think is right and then let's, ask let's for people to compensate the, for it. It gives you the opportunity to opportunity. wield power. That's right. Because you have to go out there and grasp it and take it. Um, so it's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter, but it is important. It is absolutely important for people to realize the possibility of what is right there within our grasp. These uh, things go on to the independence of communities and things of that nature, because if the concept that we're trying to get across here is that you don't need to be centrally regulated, then we need to be decentralized. And that's what the peer-to-peer economy is about. That's what culture jamming is is about, is about going out there and individually. And and for communities themselves, we talk about community currencies, uh, community gardens, and open source. Could you explain these? All right. So I think this is related to that idea of the peer-to-peer economy and the different ways that we can relate to each other that that dis, disintermediate the, the financial system, the food production system, the production system for all the objects and physical gugads of our lives. Um, again, taking control in our own hands might be literally rolling up your sleeves and literally getting your hands dirty in the garden, or at the very least... Uh, supporting people who do that by literally going to the farmers markets and supporting your local farmers and that sort of thing by creating the infrastructure for a self-sustaining community that can survive whatever kind of economic Armageddon that they try to unleash on the population, which they are already starting. The economic monetary controlled demolition is happening just as the controlled demolitions happened on 9-11. And this economic controlled demolition is designed to further enslave humanity because so many people are dependent on this system for their livelihood. Once it's gone, they'll take anything, anything, any sort of handout, anything that's offered from on high, they'll have to accept unless you have ways around it. So community gardens, uh, community currencies, uh, open source, everything, open source information, open source uh, production of media of various sorts, all obviously what you and I are involved in, um, but every every aspect of that, including open source technologies, uh, are, are all parts of this getting off of the system, decentralizing. And I would put this broadly under the category of agorism, more specifically counter-economics, which if people are not familiar with, I would suggest that they look into the works of Samuel E. Konkin III, who wrote about agorism in the agorist primer, and he wrote about uh, counter-economics as the strategy for achieving agorism. But the idea is agorism uh, derives from the Greek word agora, which is the marketplace, the place of interaction, not just in a transactional monetary sense, but in the sense this is the space where the community comes together and interacts and transacts with each other. And that idea of that being the governing organizing principle of society, that the way that people come together spontaneously to interact and transact with each other, rather than having some top-down control like a government or a multinational corporation telling them how to interact in that space, that's the ideal. We want to get to the space where we interact with each other directly. How do we get there? It's through counter-economics. And counter-economics is all of those activities 
and again, people hear economics and they think that it's all about money or stocks or something like that. No, this is about every activity that you do, everything that you do that is not sanctioned by the state. It could be something as trivial as driving, uh, I'm assuming you're kilometers an hour in New Zealand, right? Yeah. Like most of the world, yeah. Driving 51 kilometers an hour in a 50 kilometer an hour zone. Ooh, you know, you're a counter economist. You have just uh, tra uh, transgressed against the state and its laws. So that's a pretty minor version. It could go all the way up to whatever, nuclear arms dealing. <laughs> but any everything and anything in between as well, anything that's not sanctioned by the state is counter economic activity. And we're going to have to get used to interacting, transacting outside of the sanction and purview of the state if we want to create these communities that will survive the controlled demolition that they're walking, sleepwalking us into. We had uh, John Rappaport on the show uh, recently, and that was my first uh, encounter with the idea that the COVID-19 lockdowns were specifically for economic destruction, first and foremost. But secondarily, and this moves on to our other things, it's the setup of a technocratic control grid. Could you explain that? Well, this is the flip side of that promise of the technology that can free us from the centralization. This is the flip side of that, the, the, the promise of the technology that they can use to further control us. And it is, it is this edge that we walk. One way we can actually build communities that actually foster independence, the other way, total enslavement in a way that never would have been even imaginable by even the worst dystopic science fiction novels, uh, novelists of the, the past. And so techno technocracy essentially is the idea that um, the governing principle of humanity is not going to be a state per se. It's going to be this technocratic class of people who are basically allowed to rule over us because they know best. These are the people who know best about this and that. So they are the engineers, the scientists, the economists, the people who, as we know, we can all trust uh, because they are the learned people. <laughs> exactly. But really what this is about is control. So if you go back to the original technocracy movement as it developed in the 1930s, essentially uh, with Howard Scott and... Uh, and M. King Hubbard uh, writing the original technocracy manual, you will see that ultimately what it was about technocracy that I think appealed to the real ruling class that was high above these charlatans, the, you know, the people who are really writing the checks, is that technocracy comes embedded with it, the idea of total con technocratic technological control over the population. One of the key planks of the technocratic idea and ideal is that Every single thing that is being done in the economy, every transaction, every interaction will be tracked, databased, and uh, analyzed in real time because in order for this system of technocracy to function, it's not going to be a monetary economy. It's going to be a resource-based economy where essentially energy will be the underlying unit of value that will be used as a currency. People will be allotted energy units, credits. And you will be allowed to use so many energy credits per year. How do they come up with that number? How, how many energy credits will you be given by the technate, not the government, the technate that rules over you? Well, they will have to calculate all of the transactions, all of the things that are being produced in the economy and come up with a number. This is the total amount of energy that we will need in order to do this amount of production. And then everyone will get their, you know, their slice of that pie as their allotment of energy credits. And this is the way they're going to regulate society. It sounds like total lunacy. And in the 1930s, imagine how much more luna, 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 
lunatical, <laughs> lunatical, <laughs> to coin a phrase, that must have sounded. It, it would have been absolutely insane to think of that. But here we are. Here we are in 2020. And now they're talking about the digital national currencies issued by the national central banks that are going to be tied into your wallet that is going to uh, your digital wallet, which will be following and tracking every transaction you do as it is being done. They are creating the infrastructure, the groundwork for this technocracy that was being written about the, the best part of a century ago. It is slotting into place. And that is essentially what the Great Reset that they're talking about the World Economic Forum and others, that is what they are referring to. The fourth industrial revolution, the coming of this new, uh, completely 100% controlled, technologically controlled state, where don't worry, it's all for your best. It's all for public health. It's all to protect you from a cold or a sneeze or, or whatever the, the excuse for it is. They're going to institute this control. And that's, that's the nightmare that we're sleepwalking into. People will go, but why would somebody do this? Why would somebody do that? And and just like just imagine for a moment a um, an, an obscenely wealthy trillionaire, all right, and he's sitting at home and he's got a cigar and brandy and he's sitting in front of a royal a, a roaring fireplace, and he says to himself, you know, what's all this for? I don't need any more money and power. All right, just just think about the insanity of that image right there. It's not something that's congruent, is it? You don't think about people who have inordinate amounts of money and power ever thinking to themselves, I've got enough. Okay? And yeah. so at this point yeah. in time, what you're talking about is people with severe personality disorders and mental problems who have more power than they can be held accountable for holding, okay? It's very, very important. Once you've got enough power, you're not accountable to anybody else. And then what do you want? What do you need if you have a pathological need for power, an, an, a, a, a cup that has no bottom, a vessel that cannot be filled? You would want everything. And once you got everything, you would want to destroy it all because you don't know what to do when you've got it. It's like a dog chasing a car. You don't know what you're going to do when you caught it. Yeah, well, I, I would agree in, with, in essence with what you're saying. I would think I would frame it differently. I think the bottom rung of this ladder that we are given at our level of propaganda is that the ultimate aim of everyone and everything and the ultimate explanation for everything is money and that everyone's just trying to get money. And there is some truth to that, especially at the lower levels of society. There are people who are, will sell out their own grandmother or do whatever they need to in, for, for money. Um, but yes, we have to understand it at that higher level of power where they are literally connected to or, or are the bankers who are literally creating the money out of nothing. No, money is not valuable to these people. They know what, what it is. It's points, essentially, that's keeping score in a game. And that game is the game for world control, dominance, power, uh, subjugating other people and being able to reshape the world in your image. Um, which resonates with a lot of the different mystery schools and all of this, you know, that God's left the world un, uh, unfinished and it's our job to finish creating it. So we will create it in our image and all of that kind of stuff that motivates, uh, at least I'm sure, a certain portion of this psychopathic cacistocracy that rules over the the earth as it exists. Um so I, I think there's that sort of higher level of it. And then, yes, at the at the end point of this, really, what is the point of this? And I think you hit on something that's perhaps even more fundamental to the nature and character of these people. I think 
uh, if there's anything that separates the I, what I would assume is the average person from these psychopaths who pursue power through for, by any means at any cost, it is that the average person can create, is creative, and uh, sees the beauty in creation and fostering something and taking time and energy and effort to build up something, whereas this psychopathic uh, class that is ruling over us de delights and relishes in destruction, in keeping humanity down, in hobbling us, in crippling us, in putting out diseases and, and uh, other things that will ultimately hinder humanity so that they may thrive ultimately, but that the vast majority of us will not. And I liken this to a story that actually comes from the time when I was teaching in the school system here in Japan. And I was uh, teaching at kindergarten once. And I remember there was an activity where there was going to be a marathon in the, in the town where I was teaching. And so the kids were uh, coloring flags because they were going to wave the flags on the parade or on the marathon route as the marathon runners were running by, cheering them on. Oh, how cute, right? So the kids were coloring flags and they were just given basically squares to color and they could do it any way they wanted. Uh, there was no particular role. So some of the kids were, you know, uh, doing nice little patterns or designs or drawing a picture. Some of the kids were just scribbling. But I remember watching two of the girls and one of them was very carefully coloring this kind of rainbow pattern. And it was very, you know, very careful and very beautiful. And the other girl was just kind of scribbling and uh, just making lines on the page. And when she looked over at what that other girl had done and seen how much more beautiful that what she had very carefully and deliberately done versus this scribble that this girl had made on her sheet and she probably felt embarrassed by that or whatever. Her reaction was to pick up her crayon and I could see her doing this. I could see the gears spinning in her mind as she did this. She picks up her crayon, reaches over and scribbles all over that beautiful painting a picture that other girl had painted because her, her urge was to destroy. You created something more beautiful than me you put that effort and energy in, ugh, I'm going to destroy it. And that, to me, is the essence of that sort of psychopathic class. Now, that that's a four, four or five-year-old girl reacting in a way a four or five-year-old girl would. But I think these grown adults who are essentially doing that to humanity, oh, that thing that you're creating over there, I don't control it. It's not mine. I'm going to just completely scribble over it and write it out of history. That, to me, is an important part of understanding the mentality of these people and why they should not have the power that they do that we willingly hand to them when we participate and support this political process. Oh, we'll make sure the good people get into positions of power and they only use it for good because the ring of power can be wielded in that way. Nonsense. Tosh. No, the ring of power is there to be used to eliminate anything you don't like. That's what it is for. That is always how it will be used. We have to uh, throw the ring of power into the metaphorical, what is it, the, the fire of Mordor or whatever it is in that. The fires that of Mount Doom from whence it came. Go. Thank you. I'm not a big Lord of the Rings nerd. I don't know that. But <laughs> that's that's the image. And I think that is actually part of what Tolkien was getting at. And I did do a podcast on that with someone who actually does know about Lord of the Rings that people can look into. But that's that's my image of this. This is what this is about. It's about the ring of power and people who want to grasp onto that so that they can use it to destroy anything that they don't like or they don't control. And that ultimately is what this is about. And that's why I think the ring of power itself is the problem. And this technocratic control grid is, uh, to best of my knowledge, building a god, a all-seeing, all-knowing, 
all-powerful AI to run everybody's lives forever. Yeah, and uh, again, I don't know how metaphorical that is intended, but absolutely, you can find lots of clips of lots of different people in this technocratic class, Elon Musk and others, talking about summoning the demon and this sort of thing. They often talk about it as a demon that they are summoning into existence. And again, I don't know how metaphorically they intend that, but at any rate, what else do you call this idea that they are trying to bring to fruition of this all-seeing, all-knowing artificial intelligence, whatever that means, that will literally be able to predict the future or so they want us to believe or imagine. And in fact, that already exists to some extent through things like the sentient world simulation. Look that up. That was a DARPA project that uh, got reported on over a decade ago, but swept under the rug and is not talked about anymore. But these sorts of things already exist where they were literally admitting at the time they have this simulation that has a simulation of every person on the planet and what they are doing and how this is going to, 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 to play out. And so they can simulate, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? That was over a decade ago that they were even admitting that that project existed. Who knows where it's at now? But yes, they are they are summoning the demon in their own words, whatever that you take that to mean, metaphorically or literally. At any rate, yes, they are trying to build some sort of godhead that they uh, uh, some of them literally want to worship. And that's another thing. There's a transhumanist religion that I'm not going to remember the name or the founder, but at any rate, look it up. There's someone who's basically saying, well, when we create this artificial intelligence, it's and the singularity happens and it becomes smarter than any human has ever lived, it'll essentially be like a god, so we should worship it so that it might have mercy on us. And that also plays into Elon Musk's idea. Well, you got to take the brain chip because it's coming, you know, regardless. The, the singularity is going to happen, so we might as well start uh, upgrading ourselves so that they, they, the robots that take over won't kill us all. <laughs> just just lunacy utter lunacy but on this these are some of the most powerful and uh, influential people on the planet right now speaking of which bill gates and in, in terms of one of the most powerful people in the world we saw the prime sinister herself jizzy ardern in the uh, bill and melinda gates sponsored goalkeepers conference uh, saying that yes we are implementing agenda 21 without our public knowing about it and yes we're on a road to completion without our public knowing about it how tied in is bill gates to all of this technocratic control grid uh, uh, bizzo that we just discussed. And and uh, let's see if we can work in the vaccines angle as well on this one. Yeah. All right. So uh, I, I, there's no way I can do this justice in just a few minutes. So people who are interested, I really wholeheartedly suggest go to corbettreport.com slash Gates, G-A-T-E-S, where you can find my four-part, two-hour documentary on this where... I uh, talked at length about Gates and his connections, but yeah, long story short, he is absolutely an important part of this technocratic class at this moment. And again, standard caveat, this isn't to say that Bill Gates runs the world or he's the most important person, blah, blah, blah. But clearly he does have a, a part to play in what's unfolding right now. And that's unfortunate for us because uh, as I make the point in that documentary, I tend to think he is a eugenicist, um, one way or another. Maybe he doesn't even know that history, but I tend to think he does, especially because his family uh, openly and on the record not only admires and looks up to the Rockefellers who helped bankroll American eugenics, but self, self-consciously self models themselves after the, so, the Rockefellers. at the very least, a de facto eugenicist, kind of like how exactly. uh, a, a good portion... Another. Kind of like how a good portion of the population, whether or not they know it, are de facto Satanists. Right. And, and in fact, this ties directly into technocracy and transhumanism because 
the transhumanist, well, the technocratic ideal, as I say, is this idea that, uh, well, the people who know the most are fit to rule over the rest of us, which is essentially the old eugenic notion. You have the best genes, therefore you're fit, your family is fit to rule over everyone else, which is essentially the old notion of divine right of kings. Well, this special family was gifted by God with the right to rule over other people. Um, it's, it's the same old justification that they constantly dredge up every few hundred years and give a new gloss on, but it's the same old idea that essentially these special people are fit to rule over us. And I think that is what Gates represents, let alone actually um, uh, believes and adheres to himself. But at any rate, yes, an important part of the technocratic class who uh, has been funding all sorts of well, I mean, all sorts of things, things that I didn't even get into in the documentary, all sorts of crazy projects on a, a lot of different fields, but specifically in bio, biological research, biochemistry, bio uh, medicine, biomedical products and technologies to control humans in various different ways. One second, so that's James. Why. It's it's almost like nobody's ever seen a sci-fi film and like what the, what what corporations the villain runs, you know. For example. Bill Gates and all of this and all of the stuff that he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With I'm his, just thinking what science fiction corporations uh, oh, other than maybe well, the company. In, every uh, single, every single sci-fi film has some yeah. kind of like overlord scumbag, like in, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, even back as far as uh, Blade Runner, they had the, uh, the head of the corporation who lived in a giant pyramid Thrill, and, yeah. and, and was, yeah. and was to do with all of the artificial yeah. control of mankind and what have you. Sci-fi has been basically, uh, I don't know, a, a big obsession of mine for a long time because it's the only way I can find an entertaining vein of the research that I do for a living. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, they are they're they're the OG conspiracy theorists, maybe. Um, but yeah, so there's some incredibly important lessons to get out of sci-fi, um, and some hopeful ones as well, because we can imagine horrible ways that everything can go terribly wrong, but we can also imagine ways that things could work for our to our benefit sometimes. Um, so, Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Very good book. I would suggest people read it if they want to see how an anarchist revolution could take place. Um, again, it's just planting seeds of ideas. But at any rate, um, you're right. I mean, yeah, Bill Gates is is the uh, yeah the archetypical sci-fi villain <laughs> in some ways. But uh, but it is remarkable, isn't it? Because I remember I was there in the '90s. I remember Bill Gates did not enjoy a very good public reputation in the '90s. Uh, no one was sitting there marveling at Gates and, oh, what a great person he was. Some people might, I suppose, have admired his ruthless business ability to create this Microsoft empire, but no one, I mean, no one has ever said Windows was the greatest thing that happened to computing or anything along those sorts, or Bill Gates was so uh, such a wonderful programmer, or he deserved all those. But no, no one thought that. But now, online, in the controlled, manipulated bot-driven Reddit and other places, uh, Bill Gates is a saint. A saint, I tell you. And I noticed this change happening over the last several years. I've talked about it on the program before, but it is specifically because billions and billions and billions of dollars of money have gone to various media outlets to promote Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation and their work. So surprise, surprise, the public goes along with it as usual. Uh, the Columbia Journalism Review, of all places, just had a very good article up about this, something about... Uh, uh, something about the gates keepers. Um, I can't remember their their article okay, title, well, but look it up. People nowadays believe that Bill Gates is a saint. Time magazine said Hitler was man of the year twice. Marketing, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it works. 
<laughs> it sure does. Unfortunately, it sure does, which is another reason why culture jamming is a good idea. If you get a message in front of enough people, you can start to change the public debate. But um, yes, uh, Gates is definitely behind this agenda and specifically on the biomedical agenda. It's very creepy when you start to look at the various technologies he's been funding and literally personally spearheading. That was one of the things that jumped out at me when I was doing the research for the Gates documentary. I've known and I've covered various bits and he uh, here and there. Uh, with regards to Gates and what he's been funding and doing, but I've never put the pieces together in one place like that before. And when I was doing that, I started to notice it was things like uh, Bill Gates personally going to the researchers at MIT and saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of device that we could implant in people that could be remotely operated to uh, to sterilize them? I mean, that kind of birth control. Why don't we have that kind of birth control? I mean, th th that doesn't concern anyone. Yes, of course, it concerns anyone with two brain cells to rub together who actually knows about those types of pieces of the puzzle. But unfortunately, most don't. And this is why I think Catherine Austin Fitz has started uh, promoting the idea. These aren't vaccines that are being pumped and, and that the public is being primed to accept. It is injection fraud. Uh, is what she's calling it, because ultimately the vaccines are not vaccines. They are there are various technologies that are coming together right now to start controlling human beings in various ways, um, which, again, sounds outlandish until you start looking at the actual things that are being done. Of course, by this point, a lot of people, at least in the conspiracy world, have heard about the quantum dot die tattoos that will uh, be scannable by smartphone to, to show your vaccination record uh, on a smartphone to anyone who's, you know, got the authority to look into that and how that's going to be tied into the biometric ID, which is now a big part of the vaccine push for Gavi and all of this craziness. But then you start looking at the research proposals uh, that are coming online and the ideas that you're not going to be given a specific vaccine against a specific disease. In the future, they're going to inject the genome altering technology into you that they will be able to once again remotely send signals to reprogram in your body so that they will then theoretically this is how the theory they're going with uh, then they will be able to form the antibodies whatever those antibodies need be they'll just basically send an update to your vaccine your injection that will itself produce the antibodies that then will protect you against whatever the latest disease they tell you is going around uh, if anyone at all with their head screwed on straight thinks that sounds like a good idea and that they will trust the medical authorities to do that, even if I didn't think that this was fundamentally a scam to start genetically altering the population, even if I thought this was genuinely being done for good and altruistic reasons against genuine health threats, I wouldn't trust anyone to have control over my genome and start programming me from afar to produce various antibodies. Uh, let alone the fact that I know that this is part of an agenda driven by people who on the record state that their agenda is to reduce the world population. It's just mind boggling. But again, one in a thousand people have ever even heard of any aspect of this, let alone put all those pieces together. Mm. Well, as they say, never underestimate a small determined minority's ability to change the course of history because it indeed is the only thing it ever has. The state... We've grown up in this thing called the state. And like monkeys in a cage that were born there, we've never known anything different. And we haven't strived for something better because we have been broken. What is statism? 
statism is the belief essentially that there are people who have special abilities uh, to rule over others in various ways, um, essentially a special morality. And the, the clearest way to get your mind around this idea is the fact that there are, uh, for example, with police that are performing police actions, cannot be held legally accountable for their actions in the same way that an average human being can be held accountable for their actions. So if a police does something in the line of their duties, then there's a special immunity that applies to them. So they are given special paths to do things. Of course, this is not just about the police per se, but that's one way that people might have a sort of personal understanding of what's going on here. But that, broadly speaking, is this idea that there is a state that is allowed to create law it's this legal positivist idea that law is something that is created by pens on paper. And that's why there's so much of this wrangling back and forth, even amongst the alternative of people who are uh, trying to argue essentially with the paper. No, your paper says this and it doesn't say that. Therefore, I'm free to do this. No, no, no. I don't think that's what really what this is about. Ultimately, there is a natural law. And the legal positivist idea that there are people with pens, special pens on special paper that can create laws and make you follow them is itself the fiction. Um, unfortunately, statism isn't just that, though. It isn't just some sort of legal argument. It isn't just some political argument. It's it's almost it borders on the religious. It's certainly superstitious. Uh, as essentially, the state becomes God in the minds of a lot of people or it functions in that same way. And. I, in fact, just gave a presentation on this in Mexico in February of this year, which, who knows, maybe the last international trip I ever do. We'll see what the post-COVID world order looks like. But at any rate, uh, I did just give a presentation on this. Hopefully that video will be available soon to, to really draw those parallels, because I've talked about it before, that uh, statism is a form of religion. But that isn't a metaphor. It really isn't. It really, on a deeper level, does touch into the spiritual, religious uh, level of humanity and try to get people essentially to replace out God or that that image for well the the president the government that is our our God protector and uh, it functions at a deep deep level in people's psyche which is why people are so so adamant protectors of the statist status quo and the idea of not having a government is is literally unthinkable to a large portion of the population. In fact, there's, there's another coin of phrase there, the statist quo. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, I, I, will, I will give you partial credit for picking it out of what I said, but we'll both, we'll, we'll be co-owners of that idea. Oh, great. Um, I, I, expect, I expect a royalty check next month. Now, uh, <laughs> in communism, the state is God, essentially, and that's what you're talking about there. And what the... God tries to do is basically destroy the idea that there's any other gods, right? Uh, like, for example, when uh, China invaded Tibet, 6,000 uh, Tibetan temples, a million Tibetans. Yeah. What is yeah, the ultimate exactly. goal of this? So, I mean, go back to, I mean, go back to the, the font, go back to Marx and, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And I would say Marxism is the opiate of the academics, um, essentially. Um, but at any rate, yeah, it is self-evidently trying to replace that religious uh, seed that is in that is acknowledged even by atheists and everyone to be in most people. There is a religious core of of uh, that sort of spiritual 
side to people that is part of human nature, whether you believe in the reality of supernatural things or not, it doesn't matter that that idea is part of human psychology and makeup. And people try to will try to replace that will try to feed on that. Um, so in some sense, I would say, well, at least there are in some way having to conform to reality that there is sort of certain human natural inclinations and urges. So they're trying to essentially swap out what people have done for thousands of years with, hey, well, why don't we replace it with this idea? And, you know, essentially the state. I mean, of course, as we all know, Marx was not a statist. He thought the state would wither away and then we would have communism, right? It will magically wither away after the dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> you might need a little asterisk there. Dictatorship of the proletariat. How long does that last and how does it wither away? Ah, details, shmeetails. Let's let's just plunge on into this revolution, comrades. I don't care about the details. I like the overall idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> could be worse you know there could be satanic pedophiles running the world uh, speaking of which the uh the spirit of humanity as we say i feel like i've got spirit and i feel like it it, uh, it gets empowered by certain things and i feel like it wants to go out and do certain things i was wondering james where do you think you, your spiritual energy or your power comes from and what does your spirit drive you to do that's an interesting question uh, I'm not sure I've ever been asked that in that way before, so I would have to think about the answer to that. Uh, I can't, I guess I can't say, uh, I can't articulate that in a way that I am conscious of any sort of spiritual motivation or what is driving me to do what I do. All I know is that being who I am, I, I am inclined this way. I, let's put it this way. If I didn't have a podcast and I wasn't doing this for a YouTube audience or whatever, I would still be doing this type of research. I'm just, this is what I'm interested in. Uh, but luckily we are, as I, as I say, we are in this new uh, area of technological freedom that allows me to share this information with people all over the world. So that is what I'm doing and it's a win-win uh, for everyone. So that is, I, I, none of this was part of some sort of plan. None of this is intentional. It is just a reflection of who I am and what I'm doing. And that's why I, I constantly marvel at the fact that I'm here doing this at all, or that this has existed for the time that it has. And unfortunately, I've always seen, ever since, even before I really started podcasting, I've always seen that this is a brief window of opportunity before the types of controls that have existed in the previous media paradigm start to be instituted again. So that's why I was particularly motivated, particularly eager to get involved at the time that I did. Even when I did start the podcast in 2007, I already felt like, oh, I wasted so many years. I'm late to the game. Time is limited here. Luckily, amazingly, I've had so far 13 years to be able to spread this message and to spread the information and research. Um, who knows how many more years before things start to drastically change. And I think there will always be ways around the filters and censorship and what have you, but it will be harder and harder and you'll have to go further and further to the fringes of polite society and start to interact in that counter economy that we were talking about in order to get access to real information. I think it will be there, but it'll be more like the, the hive of scum and villainy of, uh, that place in Star Wars, whatever. <laughs> I should really get that quote down before more I use it. More <laughs> You will never find a go. more wretched hive of scum <laughs> and villainy. You know, you, you can tell, ladies and gentlemen, that he reads books and I watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
I actually tried reading the Star Wars novelization when I was like seven years old or eight years old or something. I gave up on this like second sentence. I'm like, I don't get this. <laughs> well, there was a great one done in New Zealand. It had, um, what was it, uh, Chewbacca? No, not Chewbacca. Obi-Wan and uh, 3PO and R2 and, and Luke Skywalker standing there and he's saying, I've never seen a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And then it, and then it camera reverses to see what they're looking at and it's the New Zealand Parliament beehive. <laughs> That's about right. It's so true. It's just so true. Now, uh, on from the uh, spirit, as the the concept was fun. What do you actually do for fun? Because I uh, here's the thing: doing this show, I often will talk to uh, traumatized people and or basically think about things that actually hurt me. Uh, that they they actually feel something when I understand this information. I actually have a physical reaction to it. And there is only so much empathy that one man can have uh, before he's drained of it and needs to recharge. I was wondering what you do to recharge, to de-stress, and, 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 and to basically keep yourself on an even keel. The reason why I ask, only now realizing it, is I've figured out what I can do to relax. I've figured out how I can recharge myself. And as a result, I've kept my sense of humor haven't gone nuts and I'm still doing the work that needs to be yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, and hats off for doing that because I know that it's not easy to do. And I've seen many, many, many people along the way sort of lose the plot and uh, get, get, go off the deep end one way or another with regards to this. It is exceptionally difficult to maintain the core of who you are while you are looking at this information, which really is some of the darkest information you can possibly confront. Uh, what uh, that's the thing that always boggles my mind when they talk about conspiracy theorists do this because they they like the comfort of knowing that the world is controlled or whatever. No, 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 no. Trust me. If I was writing some sort of comfort story about the world, it would not be the type of thing that I'm writing about uh, documenting, I should say, at the corporate report. Um, so, yeah, everyone does need to unplug, to unwind in some way from this information. And uh, no one knows that better than I do myself. Luckily, I have a personality where I can do this kind of work, and usually I can maintain some sort of detachment from it and analyze it, but sometimes it does get to me, uh, like anyone else. And so, what do I do? Uh, I am blessed by having a family, uh, especially a wife, who has zero interest whatsoever in anything that I'm doing or talking about. Listen to my podcast once or twice way back at the very beginning, back when we were dating, but doesn't care, doesn't know, doesn't want to know. It's exactly the <laughs> same as my wife. Maybe that's it, that, Maybe yeah. that's our secret, bro. A wife who just doesn't I, to care. To me, it really is, because when I'm not here at the computer doing the research, doing the work, I can completely unplug from this, and I, I, I couldn't even really deeply discuss this stuff with my wife, even if I wanted to, because she's just not interested in it. So that, that for me, is the the deep, the unplug. And, and then obviously spending time with my children, that is that it reminds me of why I am doing what I'm doing, why I care about humanity at all. It's because I love my family and I can extend that idea out to the rest of humanity. But the, my family is my core, which keeps me grounded. And then, you know, I'm like everyone else. I have my dumb fun things and guilty pleasures and what have you. Uh, uh, I just recently, I put it in my newsletter. I've been watching Todd in the shadows. Who's a YouTuber who does these one hit wonder reviews and things like this. I listened to, uh, how did this get made a podcast about 
stupid B movies where they just dismantle them and that kind of thing. I don't know, just stupid, you know, fun things that help me detach from the doom and gloom that I'm usually looking at. And lastly, I think we've got a uh, few minutes left in the broadcast. You started this a long time ago, so did I, and uh, I'm starting to think that there's two possibilities of what's going to happen. Either we're going to be taken out, or we're going to win. I don't see other another possibility. Well, to be fair, I don't think I ever see a definitive victory. I can imagine a definitive loss. I don't know if I can imagine a definitive victory. That's interesting, and maybe I'll need to interrogate that a little bit more in my own assumptions. Anyway, that is interesting, but I certainly don't see a definitive victory. We have conquered evil for all time. No, this is part of the dark shadow of humanity, and I'm assuming it will be with us as long as humanity is with us, but we can have successes and beat back that darkness, um, even if it does come again. Um, So... I don't envision it that way, but certainly I do think there are ways that we can contain, control, and ultimately defeat this dark force that is working against humanity, that is the destructive force against our creative force. Um, Unfortunately, I also can more and more see the elimination. Essentially, my position has always been as long as the human spirit exists, we will at least there there will be that spark of humanity that will be able to, you know, dark times come and dark ages happen, but there will be something on the other side, unless and until they can remove that spirit of humanity. And how do they do that? Well, I don't know if you genetically manipulate humanity so it isn't humanity anymore. That's the type of ultimate win of evil that I can I can envision. I imagine that can happen, at least technologically. That is something, a possibility. So that's Everything that, I mean, I don't know. Let's put it this way. I don't know if we're going to win. I don't know if we're going to lose. I don't know what's going to happen. I Obviously, I can't predict the future. But I know if we just sit back and let it happen by default, we are going to lose. And humanity will be enslaved and ultimately engineered into whatever pliant cattle they want to engineer us into. So we have to resist. And trust me, there is no better time to resist than right now. Because it wouldn't have been better if we resisted a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, and some people did, and what have you. But here we are now, and trust me, if you if you're not resisting now with everything you have and everything you do, uh, then you're gonna regret it ten years down the line, twenty years down the line, fifty years down the line. Can you imagine where we'll be if uh, if this keeps going? As the old saying goes, there is no such thing as a lost cause while there is at least still one fool left to fight it. And as uh, Gandalf said, a lot of people believe that great evil can only be opposed by great power. But that is not what I've found. It is the ordinary, everyday things, the acts of kindness and love that keep the darkness at bay. Ding, ding, ding. He, he was asked whether or not there was really any, any much hope. And he said, no, there was really never much hope. Just a fool's hope, but it proved to be just enough. James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com has been my very special guest. Have you got time for a little bit of self-promotion? Actually, I'm late for my next interview, so I'll just say corbettreport.com, one-stop shop for all my information. Uh, It's all there up for free, uh, viewing, listening, pleasure. 13 years of archives now and going. And uh, all I ask is people, if they like the work, please get it out to others. 
uh, please help spread it. Uh, I think this is important information. And uh, everything that I say and do is sourced back to source documents. So uh, if you don't like me or the way that I say what I'm saying or whatever, then you can get the source information itself and help to spread it and hopefully win. Let's win this thing. Yeah, we can win, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get it done. All right, James, thank you very much for your time. You have yourself a fabulous day, brother. You too. Take care. Cheers, man. There we go. James Corbett, the Corbett Report.com is his website, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank